0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Human capital theory connects education to the labor market. It theorizes that more education makes workers more productive, which increases earnings. A more educated and productive workforce subsequently increases the gross domestic product of a nation. The assumption is you go to school because you will get a better job in the future. The government invests in education because it will have a return on its investment in larger GDPs in the future. My guest today says human capital theory is dead.
1: In terms of social science theories, uh, it's one of the longest living, but it's now coming to an end. We start with education, and that's meant to lead to greater productivity which is then meant to lead to greater income for the individual and the GDP of the country. Well, when we look at that set of connections, we find that they are all problematic.
0: Hugh Lauder is Professor of Education and Political Economy at the University of Bath. He specializes in the relationship of education to the economy, and has, for over ten years, worked on national skill strategies, and more recently, on the global skill strategies of multinational companies. Hugh Lauder, welcome to Fresh
1: Ed. Yeah, I'm pleased to be here.
0: Human capital theory is such a commonplace theory in many respects, because when people think about education, they they think of it as for human capital
1: development. What is human capital? Okay, so I need to take you back a little uh, to the beginning of the theory. Uh, The theory uh, was the first sophisticated account of the relationship between education and the economy. And it said that basically people who were better educated would be more productive. And in being more productive, they would then earn a higher income. So that brought education into the picture because what it required was for higher numbers of people to be educated in order that they could become more productive, so economies could grow and their income would also accordingly grow. So that's the basic idea behind it. And it's an idea, of course, which has permeated through society. It first began really in Chicago in the 1950s uh, at the university there in the economics department. And then uh, policymakers took it on board and policymakers thought, wow, We've got a win-win here because what's happening is that if we increase the opportunities for education, so uh, our economies will grow, so people will gain a greater uh, income. And at the same time, there's a kind of connection with social justice. So that, for example, as long as people are prepared to work hard uh, and are motivated in terms of education, then they will get their just rewards. And they'll get their just rewards because employers will always choose the most talented, those that are likely to be most productive. So underlying what seems like an economic theory is actually also a theory of meritocracy. So that's the economists, that's the policymakers. And on top of that, of course, now we have parents um, and students who are going, okay, if I, need, if I want a good job, then I've got to get a good education. So that's basically the idea behind human capital theory.
0: And it, it's led to some interesting notions in, in education like this rate of return. Can you talk a little bit about what this notion is?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, how do economists know and policymakers know that this claim that education um, will lead to increased productivity, uh, which will lead to increased income? Well, not how do they know it, but how do they make that assumption? Uh, They make that assumption by saying, let's have a look at the rates of return for different kinds of education and skill in the economy. And in the past, not now, but in the past, what they seem to have found is that um, the better educated you are, the greater your rate of return in terms of your income.
0: So, more schooling means higher income in the future?
1: That was the idea, yep. So, it is, it's
0: like it's predicting the future
1: in many ways.
0: That's what they're trying to do.
1: For sure it is, yep. Yeah. They, they really thought that they um, had a theory which um, would actually predict, explain and predict the future. And, it, in fact, it's been a theory which has been around, as I said earlier, since the 1950s. And so, of, in terms of social science theories, Uh, It's one of the longest living, but it's now coming to an end.
0: Before we go into those critiques about the end of human capital theory, can you talk a little bit about what sort of impact it's had since the 1950s on education, on education policy, on education development?
1: Uh, I think the impact has come about in a number of ways. Uh, First of all, uh, one of the immediate uh, forms of impact was in development. Um, So the World Bank took on the notion of human capital theory and has argued consistently since the 80s that uh, human capital embodied in educated workers would raise the income of countries and of individuals in developing countries. So that was one clear example of the consequence of that particular theory. But at the same time, it's also been the case that in developed countries, it's been seen that if you can increase your higher education system, uh, then you'll also get uh, a win-win. You get the win-win because people will earn more money as workers and countries will have higher levels of gross domestic product. So these have been the two major consequences um, of the theory. But it's also had an extra twist. And that was the notion of the knowledge economy. And the knowledge economy, which sort of started to develop as an idea in the late 80s, um, also um, seemed to reinforce the idea that we now needed more educated workers. And the more educated workers there would be, so. so they would become more productive. And this was known as skill bias theory because at the heart of uh, this form of human capital theory was the idea that technology would drive the demand for higher educated workers. So the skill would be biased in favor of uh, the technology uh, and the demand for higher skills. And it
0: would, it would be education that would provide those skills to operate that technology that is driving the economy.
1: Precisely that, yeah. Now, in more recent times, economists have become um, a little more uh, sophisticated in one sense, and they've started to look at particular kinds of skill for which there's a higher return. But at the same time, as they've been kind of atomizing education into particular kinds of skill, uh, so employers have gone in the other direction and very often look at potential employees holistically. Uh, they want to know about their all-round uh, capability and character, rather than also their specific skills.
0: The work that I've done in in Cambodia, um, I'm just amazed by the prevalence of the idea of human capital being the, the main purpose of education. It is always meant to build and develop human capital because it will increase, incomes and also increase GDPs of the nation. Um, and the conversations that, that we have are always about this idea of projecting into the future, what sort of economy Cambodia is going to have in 2030, for instance, and what skills are needed. Um, and it just seems like it's, it's, a fool's errand of trying to predict the skills that are needed in the economy in 2030 for a country like Cambodia that's rapidly changing, for a global economy that's rapidly changing.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is a very good point. Um, let me just step back for a moment and say that in developing countries, there are certain sorts of skill that are clearly required for their development. And these forms of skill are to do with uh, the state and state workers. They're to do with uh, various, various forms of um, craft work, so electricians, builders of various sorts, that, carpenters, that kind of thing. You need those kinds of skill. But uh, the idea that you can predict in 2030 what's gonna happen is more problematic. And it's more problematic because just at the time when these developing countries are emerging into the global economy, So many of the techniques which are adopted in the global economy will hit them hard. So, for example, um, computer algorithms, what Phil Brown and I have, my co-author, have called digital tailorism, That is moving up the skill chain very quickly and robots. So, for example, if you look at China right now, um, there are less people in manufacturing in China now than there were in 2000. So in other words, many of the techniques uh, which are being used uh, in the knowledge economy, and actually it's not the knowledge economy, it's knowledge capitalism, because capitalism is always trying to reduce the cost of labor, including skilled labor. Um, Many of those techniques that have been developed in the developed countries are now being applied to developing countries. So that makes it kind of problematic as well.
0: Let's, Let's shift to your specific critiques of human capital theory. What, what do you find so problematic um, about the theory itself, maybe not the method that's employed
1: by the theory? Okay, uh, let's uh, have a look at the theory itself. We start with education, and that's meant to lead to greater productivity, which is then meant to lead to greater income for the individual and the GDP of the country. Well, when we look at that set of connections, we find that they are all problematic. Uh, They're all problematic for this reason, that first of all, education, there's now considerable split amongst uh, economists as to what we mean by education. Is it something, as I suggested earlier, which is a form of all-around development of an individual, or is it about particular skills? And that debate is really not taken off yet, but it will. So the education itself in terms of human capital, what is the capital, is a problem. Then when you look at productivity, what we see overall is that there are more and more educated people in the world, more and more educated people in particular um, countries like the UK or USA. um, And yet productivity is either flatlining Um, or is very uneven. So the link between education and productivity has now become wholly problematic. Then when you look at the relationship between productivity and income, it becomes even more problematic because what you see is that instead of um, workers getting rewarded for their productivity, since around 1978 to 1980 in the United States and the United Kingdom, what you see is that increasingly um, the wealthy are creaming off the productivity of other workers. So there are problems with all these different accounts of the relationship between education, productivity, uh, and income.
0: So this would be the, the uh, Piketty's argument of, of the rise
1: of the 1%. The rise of the 1% certainly um, ha- has been in part because they've creamed off the productivity of other workers but we need to look more closely at the relationship between productivity and income than what Piketty was talking about. Because as far as I can see and read him, he does assume that most of the rest of the income that people get is a reflection of their productivity. And I'm not sure, in other words, he becomes quite orthodox once he's he's had a look at the 1% in terms of his account of wage determination. And I don't think that's right. You only have to look at um, feminist critiques uh, of human capital theory. And I'm thinking in particular now of the work of Antonia Kupfer in in Dresden. And you see that there are a whole range of uh, jobs for which it's very difficult to determine productivity. It's not only super managers, as Piketty would say, but it's care workers. How do we measure their productivity? Um, why is it that women who can be very skilled at care work get such low wages? There's a whole range of different questions that can be asked about this relationship between productivity and income. And the idea that productivity simply determines income uh, is taken uh, as a truism in orthodox economics, but I don't think we can take it as such anymore.
0: So let's turn to the way in which human capital theory has been studied empirically? What sort of critiques do you see um, in the way in which it's been studied?
1: Well, the way it's been studied empirically, um, I'll give you a clear example since you raised the idea of 30 years um, as a future timeline for prediction. There's work by um, two um, leading economists, uh, Eric Hanyshek and Ludger Voismann. And Hanushek and Voismann, published a series of papers for the World Bank, the OECD, where they look at the uh, quality of PISA data. Um, this is international test data for different countries. And on that basis, they then predict that uh, in the future, if countries can raise their education uh, standards and their educational achievement, so this will increase GDP in 20 or 30 years by X amount. Uh, And that has become kind of a standard way of analyzing um, the returns to education in terms of human capital theory. But uh, I don't need to tell you this, you will know it and so will all your listeners, uh, that that kind of assumption simply doesn't take into account the real world. Uh, We know, for example, and this is often an example I use, that when you compare Korea in the 1950s and Ireland in the 1950s, what you see is two countries with large numbers of uh, relatively unemployed graduates. Both countries then began to take off. But if you look at the path of Korea, where much of the takeoff was state-led and is still highly state-influenced, what you see is a totally different kind of success story to the story of Ireland, which of course collapsed in 2008. So different tra- trajectories for countries based on different ways of developing them um, produce different results. So what Hanushek and Voiceman don't really do is take into account strategy, uh, institutions, all the things that actually make a difference to whether countries and individuals in them uh, do well or not.
0: One of the critiques you you put forward is that human capital theory or the scholars who are using human capital theory often um, employ methodological individualism. yes, um, and we hear this we hear this quite a bit also in in other um, education research and and I just would like to ask what what does that actually mean? Sure,
1: basically, uh, the assumption of methodological individualism, which is an ugly term I know, um, the basic assumption is, that the only thing that exists in society are individuals and therefore it is to the individuals that we look to explain uh, educational outcomes, to explain um, income, to explain the key features of social life and economic life.
0: And so it, it, it neglects things like history and, and perhaps the privilege that one could get from his or her parents. Rather than just their yes individual unique ability to 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 learn.
1: Yeah, absolutely, that's that's correct. So it neglects um, history. It neglects the structures which govern our societies, such as class, patriarchy, racism. Uh, they don't enter the story at all, um, and at the same time, it neglects institutions, the specific institutions of education for example the institutions that steer an economy um, all that is simply discounted uh, in this kind of explanation which focuses on individuals
0: so if if we were to talk about alternatives to, to human capital theory how would you describe the link between education productivity and income
1: okay um, well first of all these are now very very Um, complex uh, connections. Uh, They're not at all simple in the way that the original theory assumed. So we need to think about this very, very differently indeed. Let me just come back to the issue of structures and institutions. When you look at, uh, for example, skill bias theory, it says that we understand that Uh, in the 20th century, uh, technology was skill-biased. But actually what happened was that as technology developed, so the demand for skills increased. But when you look at the history, it can be read completely differently. And it can be read like this. It can be read, well, actually, the basis of 20th century industry was Fordism. The idea that people uh, could put a nut on a bolt on a production line, an outward roll many cars, many televisions, all the consumer goods that we now take for granted. These people were not upskilled, they were de skilled, because originally the people that made the cars were craftspeople. Uh, so that's, a kind, that's where you have what they call skill replacing, where the technology replaces the skill, doesn't enhance or demand an increased skill. So then you say, well, where did the skill bias, the skill enhancement and demand for it come from? And actually it came from the, the large numbers of white collar workers you needed to run a large corporation like that. So these are the people that did the marketing, these are the people that did the accounts, these are the people that did all the other finance work and the planning. But in order to understand how those corporations grew you also then have to go to a much wider political economy. You have to go to a political economy which talks about the structures of the labour market. And here we're looking at trade unions as well as employers. And back in the 50s, for example, and the 60s, trade unions were very strong. And they could increase their wages so that their workers could then buy the cars that were rolling off these production lines. Now. You'll see for a moment there that the story I'm telling is a very much more complicated story than the one that skill bias theorists assume. Now, they assume that because in the past we have had skill bias theories, so we will in the future, but the political economy around skill and skill development has now changed dramatically, and we need to understand it in terms of globalization not in terms of um, Keynesianism and the idea that you could get some kind of agreement between trade unions, employers, uh, and the state, because now trade unions are much weaker, for example. They've been weakened through neoliberalism. So you need to tell a completely different story. And you tell a story now about globalization, and the demand for skilled workers can occur anywhere. It doesn't have to be in any particular country. Multinational companies can simply say, okay, these skilled workers we want, they're cheaper in Shanghai than they are in London, we'll shift the demand to Shanghai. So you can see that we're living in a very, very different kind of world in which the sorts of prediction that human capital theorists made or assumed they could make simply no longer exist in that particular way. So we need a different kind of theory. But And here's the big but, the world we're about to enter is going to be even more radically different from the one I've just described. How so? Uh, Well, robots. (laughs) People, people make (laughs) a lot of robots, and I used to be very skeptical about this. But I've just been talking to uh, very senior Infocom officials uh, in multinational companies, and they tell me they're scared of the consequences. And if they're telling me that, then I'm really beginning to sit up and look at the other studies which suggest that robots can take many of the jobs that skilled workers used to take. We are moving, I think, into an era in which jobs and income will become increasingly uncertain for many, including many graduates. And that requires us to rethink the entire relationship between education uh, and the labor market, because the labor market is so radically changing.
0: Right. It's fragmented and global, and and you see further changes in the future. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, And they're going to cause policymakers huge problems, uh, which I think they're reluctant to really start thinking about and confronting.
0: Before we we turn to what then of education, Um, you use this term uh, the global auction for jobs. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so this is a book that Phil Brown and I wrote uh, with David Ashton back in 2011, which has kind of taken off a bit. And it's taken off because up until then, the assumption was that technology would always lead to an increase in demand for skilled workers, and particularly for graduate workers. The research we did was on the skill strategies of multinational companies, and they told us a very, very different story. And I'll give you an example of that, Um, and it goes like this. The first interview that we did was with a human resources very senior executive for a German engineering company in Germany. So the interview was in Germany, multinational company though. And I said to him, because I still had the human capital thinking cap on, as it were, I said to him, do you have a shortage of engineers? And he said, no. And I said, do you get them from Germany? And he goes, no. So I said, do you get them from England? And he goes, no. And then I said, do you get them from America? And he said, no. Now you can see how my mindset was. I was thinking Germany, Britain, America, right?
0: Right, the place where engineers you thought were being produced. Exactly.
1: And I said, frustrated, okay, where do you get them from? He says, we get them from China, we get them from India, we get them from Russia, especially if they're computer engineers and mathematicians, and we get them from Bulgaria, because in the Soviet bloc, this was designated as the leading place for computer analysis and development. And in that moment, our eyes opened to a whole new world that this guy in two sentences had given us. And that meant that we had to then get on airplanes and go and interview uh, executives of multinational companies from around the world to see what was going on. And two things were going on. First of all, because they are in such an intense competition, they're always seeking to drive drive down costs and brain power they want to make as cheap as possible. So cut price brain power, we call it. You get that because you can get engineers, for example, in China and in India for a fraction of the price that you can get them in the West. So what you see then is the offshoring of jobs or the movement of jobs from particular countries like the United States and the United Kingdom to East Asia. But at the same time, we picked up something else that was going on, and that was this notion of digital tailorism, the idea that you can take skilled work that graduates used to do, and you can break it down into discrete tasks, standardize it, routinize it, and then put it into algorithms that you can ship across the world so that work can be done anywhere. So these are the two key features of the global auction. Now, there is one exception to this, and that is that at the same time as we're producing all these graduates highly skilled workers from around the world so then in comes a particular ideology which suggests that it's only the very few of those graduates who are really talented and so now um, in every on every bookshop of every um hr executive office that we went to was this war for talent book and this is about how you recruit the most talented um, in competition with your other corporates. So this is the one exception. There are a few people who are now designated as talented. Now, you know, there's a major debate as to what's really going on there and whether these people really are talented or whether it's just executives or corporations wanting to see a kind of great reflection of themselves in the younger new recruits coming into their company. Because, of course, these people designated as talented earn much more money than everyone else. So that's the global auction in a nutshell. Um, and that's be, that began to open up two debates related. The first was no, we don't live in a knowledge economy. Um, no, if you're a graduate, you're not going to enter a world where you'll be highly rewarded necessarily, where you'll have status, creativity and autonomy. Quite the opposite might happen, that you'll be entering routinized work. And alongside that and following from that is the idea that actually knowledge work itself is now being stratified. So that you'll get an elite, which is the talented. You might get another group beneath them that do their bidding. And then you'll get these routinized workers. So that was why the book caused something of a stir because we were arguing um, for the first time, I think, um, that the idea of the knowledge economy and of human capital and skill bias theory really didn't work in the way that had been assumed.
0: So what then of education? How do we make sense of education in this, this world that you are painting for us here?
1: Okay, this is, I think, a really important question, because if you were to just think that we're talking about today and tomorrow, then there could be a critique which comes in, especially from the right wing, which says, oh, well, we're just educating too many people to too high a level. Uh, And in itself, that is problematic because what else are graduates gonna do when in countries like the United States and and Britain, we no longer have the forms of industrialization where people could do high-skilled, high-paid work that, for example, still obtains in parts of Germany. So that's one problem, but there's a much bigger problem on the horizon. And I kind of signaled it when I talked about the robots, because if so many of the skilled jobs that we have are going to be done by robots, then what's going to happen to graduates? What's going to happen to those who are educated? And I think the answer to that is something like this. We are going to have to give people a basic wage a universal basic wage, because the insecurities in the labour market will be so great that many will simply not survive uh, unless they get a universal basic wage. Now that universal basic wage will enable people to do a number of different things. It will enable them to retrain, to reskill, for which they will need learning accounts so that they can draw on an account to upskill where they see a need. It'll enable them to innovate and to develop different ways of interacting with this world. And the universal basic income will expand the labor market from beyond the confines of a market to work which is seen as important and contributing to society. And of course, care workers would be a clear example of that. So that's the labor market part of it in a nutshell. Then what about education? Well, if we're thinking about that world and you reflect on that for a moment, the uncertainties of that world, then clearly we need people to be as best educated as we possibly can make them. We need people who are reflective, alert, resilient in order to be able to make the best of the opportunities they have. So education becomes more important in these terms uh, than in the past.
0: Well, Hugh Lauder, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed.
1: It was a delight. I hope it was of some value to you.
0: Hugh Lauder is Professor of Education and Political Economy at the University of Bath. Next week, I speak with José Cosa about the role journal editors play in shaping the intellectual field of comparative education. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to FreshEd on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at FreshEdPodcast. The opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.